but roll the clock ahead a couple of months, and uh, if you're like me, somewhere around the Thanksgiving holiday, you'll climb up into the attic and get out those uh, Christmas decorations, your Christmas tree, and uh, you'll begin that annual tradition of, of decorating the house for Christmas. Uh, for us, we do that the day after Thanksgiving, so the Friday right after Thanksgiving. There's usually some football on, we have some good leftovers, and that's when we begin. Most of our Christmas decorations are inside. They're indoor decorations, little things that, you know, Sonny's collected over the years, or Christmas trees and all that kind of stuff. Uh, for the past couple of years, I've, I've dabbled a little bit with putting some Christmas lights on the exterior of the house. Uh, not, not anything really elaborate, um, because basically I know I can't compete with uh, some other people in my neighborhood and the decorations that they put out. And maybe, so maybe you're like me. Um, that, that same sentiment was expressed by a family in suburban Detroit last year, uh, the, the Kelly family of Westland, Michigan. Mom, Jamie, described that same experience. She said, you know, we were out, we were, we were going to be decorating the outside of the house for Christmas like we always do, but we just really got quickly discouraged because her neighbors had one of these super elaborate uh, ex Christmas extravaganzas all over the front yard. You know the type, right? There's a picture of, of, you know, Santa Claus and the reindeer on the roof, and there's all the bells and whistles, and it's one of those deals where, you know, it's synchronized to music, so you can listen to Mannheim Steamroller, and the lights are flashing, and all this sort of thing. So, so the Kelly family, they said, you know, we got out our little wimpy box of lights, and we looked at our neighbors, and we said, we can't compete with that. There's, there's no comparison. And so the mom, Jamie, uh, did something I thought was really interesting. Rather than trying to outdo her neighbors and adding more stress to the holiday season, instead, she grabbed a piece of plywood. And with that piece of plywood, she, she took some white Christmas lights and wove those Christmas lights together in the shape of an arrow. And that arrow was pointing toward her neighbor's house, okay? And then, in addition to that, she took some other lights and wove those lights together to form one, uh, one word that I want you to see here. Maybe you can read it. It's that word, ditto, right? If you want to see some Christmas lights, just look over there, right? Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, we rarely deal with comparison in such a lighthearted fashion, Right? More often than not, when it comes to that comparison game, we, we tend to play for keeps. Or maybe when it, when it comes to the comparison game, we feel like, you know, we, we don't quite measure up. And whenever we feel like we don't quite measure up, then some toxic feelings can creep in. Because of the comparison game, we can, we can begin to feel envious, feelings of jealousy, resentment, which we touched on last week, and, and all of that just kind of flows naturally out of that comparison game that we play. And young or old, I think we, we all, to certain degrees and in certain ways, we struggle with this. So last week we talked about bitterness, and that's something that everyone, that touches every one of us in some form or fashion. And so too now this week, as we talk about that, that green eye of envy and jealousy we're talking about another of these really, really toxic influences, toxic behaviors as we go through this series on clean living. American writer Joseph Epstein once wrote, of the seven deadly sins, he says envy is the only one that's no fun at all. 
And I don't know if that is true or not, but I do know this. If, if you've ever struggled with envy and jealousy, or if you yourself have ever been the, the object of another person's envy, then you know that it's certainly no fun at all. Today, as we go through this and talk, I'll be using those terms envy and jealousy interchangeably. I know that, that there is a degree of, of nuance there between those two. But I just want to point out here as we begin the, the toxic nature of envy and jealousy. Uh, it's been proven that, that envy can be mentally and physically, and I would argue even spiritually, harmful. Uh, jealous people, just think about what sort of ramifications that, that has. When, when you're around someone who struggles with jealousy or envy, or you, you yourself kind of deal with this, you know then, don't you, that the jealous people can often be resentful, they often deal with uh, anger, they're easily irritated. Uh, psychologists have found that chronic envy, that it can decrease your life satisfaction, it depresses your well-being, it's even related to things like depression and anxiety. Uh, and it's certainly not uh, just a modern kind of issue. For, for thousands of years, the best human thinkers and writers have been talking about this. Uh, Socrates, a great Greek philosopher, had this to say about envy. He says, it's the daughter of pride. I want you just to kind of register that there. We'll, we'll be talking about a passage of scripture today that says the same thing, that envy and pride are linked together. But Socrates says that envy is the daughter of pride, the author of murder. Skip down a little bit. Envy, listen to this, is the filthy slime of the soul, <laughs> a venom and a poison. That's Socrates, but that preaches because in essence, what we're going to hear today from God's word is the same thing, that envy really is this filthy slime of the soul. And where envy and jealousy, where, where those things begin at the root of all that, it starts, I think, more often than not, it starts with that little bit of comparison. It starts with that comparison game that we, that we oftentimes play. That comparison game is, is a losing game. You know, we, we live in a time of unparalleled comparison. I mean, just the, the opportunities for us to compare our lives with one another, it's really unprecedented, and a large de to a large degree, that is due to the rise of social media. Uh, you know, in the last 10 years or so, the world's changed quite rapidly, and one of the things that, that you know, day in, day out, one of the, the, the most notable changes is just the, the degree to which people are now engaged in social media, sharing the most intimate details of their lives there via social media. Uh, as you think about how comparison works, and, and you find this certainly true with social media as well, there are basically two types, according to psychologists, two types of social comparison that we engage in. Uh, the first is called upward social comparison. The other is downward social comparison. So upward social comparison, you probably could figure this out. Upward social comparison is the, the tendency we have to self-evaluate, but we do this by comparing ourselves to other people. So with upward social comparison, what I'll do is I'll pick out someone who's a little higher up than me, someone who I consider to be a superior in, in whatever sort of field. So we might be talking about, you know, net worth. Uh, we might be talking about proficiency in some sort of job at work. It might be your employer, you know, but you pick someone who you feel like is a little further along than you, someone who you think has the ideal family, right, or the, you know, the best kind of relationships, or somebody who's driving a cooler car than you. I don't know, we do this all the time, but that upward social comparison, I'm comparing myself against someone who I think is further along, someone who's ahead of me, and then 
on the flip side, you, again, you figure this out too, the downward social comparison is where I'm not comparing myself to someone I think is better than me, but instead it's kind of the looking down your nose thing that you do, where you kind of compare yourself, well, you know, at least I'm not that. I may not be there, but at least I'm not there. So we choose someone, and again, whatever the metric might be, we choose someone who we feel like is inferior to us in some sort of meaningful way. And I bring all that up to bring us back to this social media point, because social media is a breeding ground for that kind of comparison. There's some really interesting research that's being done on this. And, and basically the research comes back and says that, that there is there's perhaps no greater exporter of envy and jealousy in our culture than social media. Because we do this thing all the time where we're comparing ourselves and the lives that we see displayed on the computer screen, the fake plastic lives that we see you know, on the computer screen, right? Of the glamorous life that everybody else is living, we compare that against our own reality and we almost always come away lacking. That's why for many people, they walk away from an engagement with social media and they feel worse than they did before they started. Has that ever happened to you? So the way this is played out day in, day out. So, um, you know, all your friends are posting their engagement pictures with their custom wedding hashtags and you're still single, right? That's a comparison and we walk away feeling worse about ourselves. Or, you know, everybody you know, it seems like they're, they're posting their cute little pregnancy announcement photos and you and your husband or you and your wife continue to try and continue to try and continue to try to no avail. Or like all your friends go on these exotic, you know, vacations and they come home and you've got to see all the pictures for three weeks in your feed, you know, and, and you haven't been able to leave town for like two years. You know, that all, all of those are just little examples of, the, of what we're talking about today, this little comparison game that, that we sometimes play. And so, you know, as great as something just, you know, like social media can even be, it can also just be a breeding ground for that kind of comparison. And you can do the same thing with any, it doesn't have to be, you know, what's posted on social media. For the longest time, it just had to do with materialism and what the neighbor had. So your neighbor comes up with a brand new car and, you know, you might have been perfectly happy with yours until you saw him pull into the driveway. And now you think, well, now I need one of those, right? Or, you know, you're perfectly content with your phone until somebody you know has the coolest new, you know, iPhone 45. And now you got to think, well, I've got to have one of those too. It's, it's always, it, that's the way comparison always works. You will always find somebody against whom you just don't compare. You'll always find somebody who's better at relationships. You'll always find somebody who has a cooler gadget. You'll always find somebody who's, whose bottom line is better than yours. And that's what makes this so dangerous, the comparison game so dangerous. It's because inevitably, it's a game we're going to lose. If you want a good working definition of envy, this is as concise as I can make it for us today. I just think this is a good way to put it in everyday language. Envy is resenting God's goodness toward others. It's plain and simple, all right? Somebody has said that envy is the fine art of counting uh, someone else's blessings and not counting your own, right? There's some truth to that. To a large degree, envy is when I'm more concerned and looking over the fence and seeing how God has blessed you and I'm not really paying that much attention to my own blessings. That is absolutely true. It just doesn't go far enough because real envy isn't just ignoring my own blessings and counting yours. Instead, it's resenting God's goodness, resenting the ways in which God has showered down blessings upon you. That's what real envy is. 
And for some of us, we might not see the danger in that. We might think, well, what's the, what's the harm? You know, what, what does it matter if I'm a little envious of my neighbor and his car? I'm a little bit jealous of, you know, her relationships. Or, yeah, I look at their vacation photos and I wonder what it's like to, to have that life. You know, what's the harm? Some of us may think that. Well, first of all, I'd say, you know, you say, what's the harm? God seemed to think that was pretty important because of the Ten Commandments. One of them had to do with, you know, coveting, which is basically kind of what we're getting at, at here from a material perspective. But even beyond that, I want you to hear a passage of scripture today where God doesn't mince words at all and, and he puts it in a, in a way for us to really get our arms around whenever we think envy might not be really that big of a deal. I want you to hear what God says in this next passage of scripture because I think, I think he pretty much leaves us without that option. The passage is from James chapter 3. Of course, it's here on the screen as you see. Uh, I encourage you to mark that in your, in your Bibles today, you know, after lunch, maybe spend a little bit of time before you do whatever else you're doing this afternoon. Read through James 3. I mean, James is so, so concerned that the body of Christ be a place of peace. So the contrast point here is peace. There's, you know, factionism breaking out in the church, and James says, uh-uh, come on, we're, we're better than this, okay? This is not, Jesus didn't die so we could all just stay in our own little enclaves of like-minded people and, and not fellowship with the, the ones of the body we just don't like and he says no that's not the way that's not the way it works okay but in this particular passage he gets at something that at a root level is undermining that peace and it is selfishness as we'll see but it's also envy so here's God's word from James 3 14 through 16 but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts he says do not boast about it or deny the truth such wisdom quotation marks, right? Such wisdom, he's being a little bit sarcastic here, this, this earthly wisdom that everybody thinks is so great. He says that kind of wisdom, look, it does not come down from heaven, James says. Instead, it is earthly, strike one, it is unspiritual, strike two, and then to top it all off, he says, it's from the devil, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So again, back to our thing, you know, eh, jealousy and envy, is that really that big of a deal? According to God's word, it is a huge deal, all right? According to God's word, envy and selfish ambition are at the root of every evil practice. I mean, you just want to kind of diagnose it, let, let God's word diagnose everything, you know, evil, all these wicked, toxic, evil things that we're participating in, that we're trying to talk through this summer. According to the word of God, it all kind of gets back at this root level. It gets back to envy and pride, selfish ambition. We can summarize that just by calling it pride, okay? And moreover, moreover, what the word says here is that envy, what makes it so dangerous is that it comes from the devil, that it is demonic in nature, that it is a tool of the adversary, that the adversary uses envy, all right, to change us, to harm us, to hurt us, but also to harm and impair my relationships with others. That's what makes envy so dangerous. So envy and pride, you put those two together, and that is, that is a dangerous mix, according to God's word. And, and almost every time Satan comes along, he is going to throw one or both of those at God's people. So you go all the way back in time to the Garden of Eden. Just go back there. Satan comes up to Adam and Eve and the temptation there in Genesis 3. Was it not a temptation of bitterness, of, of envy, and also of selfish ambition? When the serpent says to Adam and Eve, did God really say 
And he begins to plant these seeds of doubt. He begins to plant these seeds of jealousy, these seeds of envy. Don't you want to be like God? If so, reach for that fruit. And so the envy and the pride conspire together to bring down Adam and Eve. And they conspire together to bring down us as well. And that is why Satan uses those in such a powerful way in our lives. And that's why we're talking about envy, jealousy, bitterness like we talked about last week. That's why we talk about these together this summer. The Greek word that James uh, uses here is the word zealos, from which we get our English word zealous, or perhaps the word zealot. And in our English usage, that term has a pretty positive association sometimes. We would talk about someone who is, you know, zealous for uh, God. They, they're zealous for God's word. You know, they want to do the right thing, so they're, you know, they're zealous for that. But in, in the ancient world, it had usually a more negative connotation. And so uh, whenever James uses this word, he's using this word that has negative but also sometimes an evil connotation. According to one uh, Greek lexicon, it says that zealous describes this, a desire to make war. You hear that? A desire to make war upon the good which it beholds in another. So when James is talking about the danger of bitterness and envy, he's using a word in that culture that would have resonated. This is not just, you know, well, I've kind of wish that I had, you know, the new iPhone that Susie has. No, this is a desire to wage war against the goodness that God has showered down upon someone else. And in the context of James, again, bitter envy and selfish ambition are rightly considered to be enemies to the kind of peace that God wants. So again, at a top shelf level, what James is saying, he's writing to the church and he's saying, God wants us to live in peace and harmony together. That's why Jesus died to bring us together. We're united in baptism. We're united around the Lord's table. So therefore, how can we let anything disrupt our peace? He's going to say later on in the chapter, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So all of that James is over here working and laboring for, and he's going to say at the opposite end of that spectrum, you have things like envy and selfish pride working to undermine the very thing that God is trying to bring about in his people. And whenever Satan is over here trying to undermine all that, he gets us to wage war for him. That's the danger of envy. When I'm willing to wage war against you because God has been good to you and not to me. At least that's the mentality. So all that is summarized in other places in the scripture. One of them that I think just gets at the heart of it really well is Proverbs 14, verse 30. A heart at peace, again, peace and envy being contrasted with one another, even in Proverbs, okay? A heart at peace gives life to the body. When things are right, when you're living in right relationship with God, right relationships with others, and right relationships with the world, man, you are healthy. That is a picture of biblical health. That's just all right and good, you know, when things are, are at peace. But envy rots the bones. Envy is like a cancer, right? It works in this insidious internal kind of way to bring nothing but death and turmoil to the one who holds on to it. So we have this running theme in the scriptures where you could take this passage of scripture and let it be kind of a lens through which you understand so much of what's going on in God's word. You'll be surprised. Just think about how many places in scriptures talk about and warn against the dangers of envy and jealousy. Here's just a couple, all right? This is just kind of fly through, through this here, but you, just to get a feel for it. This is the, the biblical demonstration of envy rotting the bones, okay? So in Genesis 4, Cain has this envy of Abel. He's jealous of his brother. And that jealousy and that envy, it leads to this murderous rage there in Genesis chapter 4. You roll the clock ahead, Genesis uh, 30, we have the story of Rachel and Leah. It says that Rachel, the younger sister, is beautiful. 
She's just beautiful to look at. And Leah, her older sister, it says that she's weak-eyed, which is an interesting way of saying that she is not physically attractive. So you have this contrast between these two sisters. One is the beauty queen, and one, her dad has to trick a man into even marrying her, okay? So can you imagine the level of resentment and bitterness and envy and jealousy that's going on between these two sisters? And then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 30, the roles reverse, because now Rachel is the one who's envious of Leah, because Leah is able to have children, and Rachel at this point in her life is not able to. And so this family dysfunction, it continues. Genesis 37, you have Joseph and his brothers. Kind of the bitter envy between Rachel and Leah it manifests itself now in these boys. And so they sell Joseph off into slavery because they envy him. Interestingly, Psalm 106, verse 16, it says that the children of Israel envied, they were jealous of Moses and Aaron because they had leadership positions that God had given them. They were jealous of them. Saul was envious of King David. David was anointed to be the next king over Israel. Saul is so jealous, he's so filled with rage, he starts throwing spears at God's anointed one. And then in the New Testament, the gospel writers, both Mark and Matthew, but the passage here, Mark 15, verse 10, Mark records that whenever the chief priests turned Jesus over to Pilate, that Pilate was able to discern it was only because they were jealous of Jesus. The Bible is filled with example after example of why envy is so toxic and so dangerous. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul just says simply, love does not envy. So as people of love, when God's love permeates our every being, there should be no room for that envy and that jealousy in our hearts. But again, all that begins with comparison. So, uh, how do we overcome envy? Again, God's word is clear that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of warnings here, but, but as we work toward an answer to that question, how do we overcome envy? I just want to give you two things, and then we'll be done, okay? One is something I think we need to stop doing. So one word of warning, let's, let's stop doing, you know, this. But also, one thing that I think we need to be serious about and very intentional about starting to do. So let's begin there with the, the negative one, what, what not to do. The first thing we have to do is we have to stop with the comparison. I mean, we just need to stop living in that place where we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. We need to stop doing that because we recognize that it's a losing game. We will always lose the comparison game, so we need to stop. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul makes this point. He, he, he's, God is warning through Paul. God is warning us about the danger of, of comparison. So listen to this passage there in Galatians 6. Uh, Paul says, each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself, listen to this, without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. According to God's word, that comparison game is dangerous. So the word of God, Paul here is saying that, that each one of us, we have a load that we have to, to carry, each one of us has a certain calling from God, certain responsibility to live according to the, to the plan God has for our lives, okay, but we should do so without comparing it to other people. So we should live out whatever spiritual gift God has given us. If you're part of the body of Christ, you have one of those spiritual gifts. So we live that spiritual gift out. But in the Corinthian letters, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, hey, live that out. But don't sit over here and like, start comparing who got what gift. Because again, what is that going to do? It's going to do nothing but breed envy and jealousy and bitterness and resentment, all of which are bad for the body of Christ. And so in God's word, we have this, this point here. It's a little subtle, but he's saying, look, hey, you Stop with the comparison. Stop comparing yourselves against one another. There's a Christian writer by the name of Anne uh, Voskamp, and she 
she writes a lot. She talks about, in one particular writing of her, she talks about a conversation she had with her daughter. So her daughter comes to her, and she's, her eyes are filled with tears. And you can imagine the scenario. Somebody said something, some kind of comparison thing is going on. So, so she talks about the danger of comparison with her daughter. And Anne tells her daughter that there will always be people who see everything in the world as a measuring stick for their worthiness. So she says, if your life looks like a total mess to somebody, all right, in their eyes, your life just looks like a total wreck. She says, those people will pull out the measuring stick, they'll pull out the yardstick, they pull out the ruler, okay, and they will measure themselves against you, and they'll do so so that they will feel confident in their own worthiness. That's that downward social comparison we were talking about earlier, okay? But then she says to her daughter this, also, if your life, life looks like a monument, to some people, you know, you're, you look like you have it all together, right? So to those people, they'll do the same thing. They'll pull out that measuring stick, but what they'll do is they'll start cutting you down, right? They'll start cutting you down from this place for their own sense of empowerment. And Ann Voskamp, in the wisdom of a conversation between a mother and a daughter, you can almost picture kind of that interchange. She could tell her daughter's not quite getting it. So she says, you know, you just need to know this, that, that every measuring stick we use eventually becomes a weapon. And her daughter kind of looks at her like, what? <laughs> she says, okay, so do you remember when you were little girls, you and your sister? And I would have, you know, material spread out in the living room, and I would have my yardsticks out, and I'd be making measurements. I was going to be making cuts to, to, you know, to make a summer dress for you or your sister or pajamas or whatever I was making. And she says, yeah, I remember that. And she says, well, do you remember coming through? And I would have my yardsticks laid out there, and you and your sister would come through, and you would grab those yardsticks, and what would you do with them? She was like, oh, I remember. We would use them as weapons, right? We'd fight each other. It would become, you know, sword fights. We'd be poking and running around. And she says, exactly. Because that's what we do with measuring sticks. Every measuring stick we use eventually becomes a weapon. We're either hurting ourselves or we're going to use it to hurt somebody else. But all of that, according to God, is toxic and ought not be allowed. So in my life and in your life, what are the measuring sticks? What are the ways in which we, we try to gauge ourselves, we try to compare ourselves here, there, you know, again, whether it's net worth, whether it's the latest gadget, size of your house, where you live, your dress size. You know, I don't know like, what it would be for you in particular. Those are probably some good places to start. But I want you to know that every single time we use one of those measuring sticks as a way to compare ourselves against somebody else, we are picking up a weapon, a weapon from the enemy, a weapon that comes straight from the bowels of Hades. Because that's what happens when we use those measuring sticks, when we compare ourselves either positively or negatively. And Voskamp closes by saying, she says, comparison is a thief that robs your joy. But even more than that, comparison makes you a thief, tries to rob the joy of someone else. So if you struggle with some of that, I just would want to say this. If, if you find yourself struggling with comparison, if you're, if you're a person who feels like you, know, you can never quite measure up, I would want you to remember what God's word says. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient for you. Would you say that with me this morning? My grace is sufficient for you. That means that in Christ, you're enough. It means that if you are a recipient of the grace of Jesus Christ, that's enough. You don't have to compare yourself anymore 
to him or to her, to the one who's further ahead or the one who's further behind. You don't have to do that anymore. We sing all the time this song, In Christ Alone. It's become one of our favorites over the last couple of years. It's my, one of my personal favorites. But I wonder sometimes, do I, do I really mean those words that I'm singing? Because if, if being in Christ alone is really, at the end of the day, the only thing that counts, then why do I continue to play this losing comparison game? I'm just giving Satan a foothold in my heart and in my life. So know this today. If you struggle with comparison like this, we need to stop comparing because your, God's grace is sufficient for you. So in order to overcome envy and jealousy, we need to stop playing that comparison game. And now I just want to close by talking about one thing that we need to, to start doing. And that is we need to start rejoicing together rather than resenting one another. The key to overcoming that comparison game is found there in rejoicing and not in resenting. So instead of resenting God's goodness in somebody else's life, instead, we should celebrate with them. As we noted last week, resentment is one of those things. Bitterness is one of those things that we, we choose to engage in. We make a conscious choice to be bitter. Or we choose to leave all that behind and to become instead a person of exceeding joy. And so in the same way, we would say this today, that we can choose to be that envious, jealous person who's callous, who resents the goodness of God in someone else's life. But just know it's a choice. So just as surely as you can choose to do that, you can also choose not to. You can be free from that. Wouldn't you like to be free from the way that you feel when you start comparing yourself to him or to her? to them, to the, you know, like God says, no, you can make this choice. I feel like over this series, I've probably used that word choice, talking about the choices that we make. We've probably said that more in this series than ever before, because it's just so true. God's word, one of the reasons I think he gives us so much instruction is to help us make good godly choices. So we need to be people who are rejoicing. Whenever, whenever we have godly cause to celebrate with our brothers and sisters, let's be people who rejoice. And that all comes from, from God's word. I mean, it's just as biblical as the day is long. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. For my money, that is just one of the best descriptions of the life of the church that you're going to find. We are the people who weep when our brothers and sisters in Christ weep. We show up whenever there's pain, whenever there's hurt. We just go through it together. And we've talked about that from the stage. We weep with those who weep. But Aren't you thankful, too, that there's this piece, too? We, we have the privilege, the blessing. We get to rejoice with those who rejoice as well. So whenever there is reason for godly celebration, we, as the people of God, we rejoice together. We, we weep with those who weep, but we rejoice with those who rejoice. And that has to be our choice. And the best example of this that I know of is found in the Bible. And it comes from the relationship that David had with a young man by the name of Jonathan. King Saul, again, was king over Israel. He resented David greatly because David had been anointed as the next king over Israel. But King Saul had a son named Jonathan, and Prince Jonathan and David were best friends. Now, according to earthly wisdom, according to earthly custom, the successor to the throne would be the prince, right? So according to earthly custom, once King Saul died, the throne would pass to Prince Jonathan, but that's not what God had in mind. Saul sinned, 
And God said, I'm going to take the throne away from you. I'm going to give it now to this young man that I have anointed, and that young man is David. But I want you to see how Jonathan reacted to all of that. How Jonathan reacted to God pouring out blessing and showing favor to this friend of his. Even to the point that this friend of his received that which by rights could have, and in the minds of many, should have been Jonathan's. I want you to see how he reacts. 1 Samuel 23, 15 through 17. David's in the desert. He learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David, and he said to him, and he helped him, listen to this, he helped him find strength in God. Because that's what a good friend does. A good friend helps you find strength in God. And then listen to what Jonathan says. He says, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. And Jonathan says, I will be second to you. There's not a hint of resentment or bitterness or envy in Jonathan's language here. You know, you can imagine how many times as a young boy he pictured that day when he would sit on the throne like his father, when he was inaugurated, when he took the oath, when he had the chair and the crown and the robe and the scepter, when, he, when it was all his and the kingdom was his. Imagine Jonathan as a young boy picturing that, and only to find out that that wasn't God's plan. I don't know about you, but if it was me, I would be a little bit bitter. I might be a little bit envious, that I might be a little bit green, but not with Jonathan. He says to his friend, you're going to be the king. I'm going to be second to you. I've got your back. Don't you worry about my dad. Don't worry about anything. God's got this because this is God's blessing toward you. He didn't resent God's goodness in David's life. Instead, it sounds an awful lot like he's willing to rejoice over that goodness. And the key, brothers and sisters, to overcoming envy and jealousy, and even the resentment we talked about last week is found right there. Can you and I be people who rejoice in God's goodness in the lives of others? So Matt's going to come and lead us in a song in just a minute. We'll sing together. We'll stand. And it's an opportunity for us to, to share anything with one another that we might need to share. Certainly that begins with sharing with God. And I can't imagine how many times that happens just privately. And nobody else even knows about it. The things between you and God that stay between you and God. Maybe this is a moment for you and God. A moment where, you know, some of the things that we're talking about here, some of the things we read about from God's word, maybe it just prompts some things to just start rising to the surface for you. Those feelings of envy, jealousy. Maybe today you're even right now thinking about a person that you need to talk to. Thinking about someone you need to make something right with. I hope that you'll take advantage of this time and just allow God to give you the strength and the courage maybe to even do that. But if there are some things that you need to share with your church family today, maybe you don't even have a church family. This can be your church family. <laughs> if you have something on your heart that you want to share that we can be praying about, maybe jealousy and envy has been something that you've struggled with for a long time and you want some encouragement, people who can help you along the way, I can think of no better way for us to, to close than by lifting you up in prayer. But actually, you know, maybe one better way, if there's somebody today who said, you know, I, I'm ready to give my life over full board to Jesus. And I, I, I'm ready to be freed from the shackles of maybe jealousy and envy, but maybe it's a whole lot of other things. Maybe there's so much sin there that's been kind of holding you down. You're ready to lay that down and walk 
in that new life that Jesus offers. We would love to rejoice with you as you rejoice that today, if that needs to happen. If you need to respond to the awesome grace and love of God in any way, I hope you'll do that. Let's stand and sing our song together.